Okay. Thank you, Liana. Wow. The father of salmon. <laughs> it's my favorite part. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, hi, I'm Brendan. Um, I'm a student in training for ministry here. Um, it's great to see you all. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 1. Father God, thank you for assembling us here. Uh, we pray that you open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. So Matthew chapter 1 is a graveyard, and it's a graveyard in two ways. First, it's a genealogy of Jesus, so it's a great long list of names of dead guys, many of whom we don't know anything about, except for the names that are listed there. Many of them with names difficult to pronounce and therefore easy to skip over, which is exactly what we did today, but we're not going to lose the value of them. There are people who lived lives and had stories and families, but we know nothing about them, so we find it very hard to care about them. It's hard for us to understand why they matter at all. But more than that, it's a graveyard for folks attempting to read the Bible for the first time. Because someone will lay their hands on one of these little things, you've probably seen flying around everywhere. I'm not exactly sure. I, I presume the Gideons print them, but they seem to just crop up from nowhere like belly button lint. Um, and, uh, thank you. And, uh, because it's just the New Testament. All these Gideon New Testaments, all these Bible Society New Testaments start with the book of Matthew, as it should. And so someone who doesn't know what they're looking at will open it up and they'll go, all right, Matthew chapter 1. Da 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 da. Son of David, son of Abraham, Huda, Perez, Zerah, Tamar, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab. What am I reading? What is this? It's like a Saudi phone book. What am I even looking at? Why is this here? I don't care. And the common Christian response to this question, why should I care, what is this genealogy here for, is to skip over the whole thing and start with the Christmassy stuff in verse 18. But the truth is that this first part of the Gospel of Matthew is there to answer a similar question. If we read on about how the angels spoke to Mary and promised that she would fall pregnant with this supernaturally occurring uh, child of God that she would call Jesus, and if someone hadn't known that story, they might be right to ask, who is Jesus and why do I care? And this passage we're looking at tonight is Matthew's answer to that question. Matthew says, the reason you care is because Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now if you go on to ask, what is a Christ? Who is David and who is Abraham and why do I care? Now we can start unraveling why the passage matters. Matthew, who wrote this gospel, was a Jew. He expected other Jews to be reading this gospel particularly. And so he was writing with the expectation they'd pick up on names like David and Abraham and Christ. Matthew is trying to cut right to the heart of the Jewish reader as he reads this, to tell them that everything that they learned in their Jewish upbringing, every piece of Hebrew scripture from the Tanakh that they memorized was about this guy. And as you make your way through the gospel, it becomes more clear that since the arrival of Jesus, everything changed in those promises. Or rather, his promises stayed the same, but they became available to everyone in the world. No longer just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. 
And that's where we come in. That is why we should care. Because what Jesus offers is not a new way to look at life or a book of nice moral principles and good feelings. What Jesus offers is membership in God's family. The Bible tells us that all can be called sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is an adoption contract. And Matthew chapter 1 gives us insight into the family we are being adopted into. So tonight we're talking about how Jesus welcomes us into that family. But what does that mean? It sounds like a nice fridge magnet. Jesus welcomes us into his family. It's nice. But what do we non-Jews, we Gentiles, need to know about this family tree that we are missing? Really the key is right at the start in verse 1 of chapter 1. A convenient place to put a good key. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Christ, David, Abraham. These are the, these are the three names that Matthew is trying to tie together. If we understand why that's significant, we get the chapter. If we get the chapter, then we're well on our way to getting Jesus. So in ancient times, 2000 BC, out of a whole world of tribes and warriors and petty kings, God chose Abraham. He called him out of his home nation of Babylon, and told him that he would be the one through whom God would raise up his nation of people. That Abraham would be the grandfather of God's chosen people. Genesis 12, 2-3 says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the nation was going to be the children of Abraham, and it was. And importantly, all the other nations on earth would be blessed through that nation. So that's Abraham. Then we flash ahead, 1,000 years or so, to about 1,000 BC. God raises up David to be king of that nation. David becomes king of the children of Israel, of Abraham's grandchildren. And because David is a son of Abraham, he's in this succession that we get in Matthew. So God raises up a king, but he promises David that he will raise up after David a king who will reign forever. He says in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, God tells David, when your days are over and, your rest, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. God creates the world. From that world, he chooses Abraham to raise up a nation. From that nation, he chooses David, through whom to raise up a king, and that king is Christ. The word Christ, meaning anointed one, literally king, as far as the Jews were concerned. Reading Christ for a Jewish audience has the same connotation as Elvis for rock and roll, or His Majesty King Wally Lewis for rugby league. So what gets skipped over as part of Jesus' boring family tree is in fact Matthew trying to grab the reader by the shoulders and shake them and say, this is the guy. This is the guy who is supposed to be the one that God blesses all the nations through. He's the one who's supposed to raise forever or reign forever. 
this is the guy that we've been waiting for. Jesus fulfills all those promises and goes on to show us that even though there was this bloodline that started through Abraham, went through David, came to Jesus, it's never really been about having the right blood. It's about who Jesus died for, whom God calls to be his people. Romans 9.26 says, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So God has established a family of people and invited us to be a part of it. What should this mean to us? See, the problem with the word family is it can be used vaguely. It's thrown around a lot. You can buy a little card at Ikea that proudly calls you a part of the Ikea family. It entitles you to reward points and discounts because you know the really defining thing about family is the discount they can get you on flat-packed furniture. Half the jobs you get as a teenager will encourage you by saying that now you're part of the McDonald's family, or you're part of the Subway family, or the 7-Eleven family. And these are nothing like actual families, it's just that the word is nice. It has fluffy, warm qualities, apart from any actual meaning it might have. Can you imagine calling up the national director of Ikea to confide in him some personal secret because he's part of your family? I'm not sure Sven would appreciate that. <laughs> so I guess what I'm trying to say is when the Bible talks about being children of God and part of that family, we cannot stop at that fluffy feeling and go, ah, children of God, and then walk away because it's meant to mean something. And it's meant to mean something like what we mean when we talk about our own families. Our own families are supposed to give us an idea what God's perfect heavenly family is like. So what does a good family do? Tolerates our weaknesses for a start. Looks after us when we are weak, expects us to look after our weaker brothers and sisters. There is a formative moment in every child's life when they realize just how supportive their parents have been and for how long. Every childhood craft project you did was not as good as you were told it was. <laughs> I am sorry. That potpourri dish you made in grade two that was supposed to look like a cat, didn't look like a cat. Didn't look like anything like a cat. And as soon as you left the room, your parents had to try to not laugh as they held this melted warthog thing that was supposed to look like a cat. For me, it was a painting that hung in my family's house for years, must have been the better part of a decade. I think I painted it in kindergarten, I can't be sure. That era in my artistic development was a blur of fast matchbox cars and too much Ribena. But it was a painting of my sister, and it was literally a smiley face with feet and one big line of hair that just sort of seamlessly became arms. <laughs> and it hung in the entrance hallway in a gold frame, which I now realize was sprayed plastic. But the point is that no one's an artist at age four. 
but your family will pretend you are, and they will help you get better. Because you're not in that family because of what you do, because of how good that you can do things. You do the things you do because you are part of that family. The family is the initiator. What you produce, what you strive to do, is something they help you accomplish. And the same is true of God's family. Half the guy in Jesus' family trees are scumbags. Even King David, he starts his life as this giant slaying hero and then seems to turn into basically a mafia boss towards the end. He kind of runs his protection racket against the uh, Judean countrymen. He gets another man's wife pregnant and then has some of his fellows make sure he has an accident so that he can marry the woman. It's quite a mess. But God is not looking for perfection. He's not looking for the best of us. He's not even looking for good because no one is good like God. And if there is ever going to be any real goodness, let alone perfection in any of us, it's going to be because God built it and installed it and nurtured it in us. Forgiveness out of love is another crucial aspect of family. You forgive your family because they forgive you and because you have that bond of love that means you value that relationship and it drives you to forgive them and make things right. Since being part of imperfect is hurting each other, it's critical to be able to forgive that hurt. Another example while I'm picking on my sister, who is not here, and that's why I can pick on her. When we were very young, she's two years older than me, she got a present, and there was this little pretty autograph book, nice and clean and blank ready for her to go out and presumably meet celebrities in the street and get them to sign it. But since I was such a good brother, I felt I wanted to give her a head start because it's not her fault she doesn't know any celebrities. And I thought, who are some celebrities that I know? Top Cat. Mudley. If you're too old to get that, Tom and Jerry. If you're too young, Finn and Jake. She was furious. Um, but she forgave me because that was an honest and charming mistake. And because she loves me and I'm part of her family. Now by contrast, whenever she and I were given a couple of dollars to buy candy, I would spend all of my money on as much candy as I could get and she would save all her money because she knew I would share mine with her if she asked and I was too young to realize I was being rorted. <laughs> but I forgave her because she's my sister and I love my sister and I will let others be the judge of which of those two crimes is the most severe. <laughs> and likewise, the family of God is about forgiveness for what we do to one another and what we do against God. Entrance into that family is based on the understanding that you are aware and sorry for the sins that you have committed and the faith that Jesus has paid the penalty for those sins so that you can be forgiven freely. There's discipline for wrongdoing. It's not just open slather on behavior, but no crime is too big to forgive for those who really have faith in the Savior. And no personal flaw or addiction or shame is so severely part of you that God's Holy Spirit cannot work through it and work it out of you. But likewise, the pain that comes from a family can show us something about our earthly families isn't right. The human failings when a family member holds a grudge and just won't forgive are excruciating. 
Instead of building a family, or family building you up, it's possible that they can tear you down. And I'm blessed not to have any personal examples of that, but you don't have to look very far to see broken families and broken homes. Even in good families, there are human limitations. Not everyone who gets into the family gets to grow old. And those who do will someday die anyway. And the ugly truth is that good and bad families alike will all come apart piece by piece. And the reason that we do feel that, the reason that we do cry at funerals and sometimes you will never get over losing that loved one, is that you know in the pit of your soul that it is not right that a family should wither away. That the loved ones that we have should not die, and no matter how often a, a secular celebrant might say that it is a natural part of life to die. We know better. And some folks repress that feeling, and they never talk about the loss, and some folks obsess over that feeling, and they will surround themselves with photos and mementos, and they will never delete that last voicemail they have. But it drives men and women insane because we know it is not right. It's instinctually true. You can watch someone's family dissolve through bitterness or tragedy, and you feel the helplessness and the wrongness of what's happening there. But God's family does not break down. It's a family only available to those who have embraced forgiveness, and therefore it is impervious to bitterness. And Jesus Christ, the one whom the Father calls the firstborn son, the leader of the family, showed us that death can't tear that family apart. He showed us that when he died and rose again. That action promised that if your family was part of his family, then you really could expect to live forever in God's kingdom. If you don't accept that, then all your feelings of grief and helplessness at losing loved ones are just feelings and you just have to get over it. But if you do accept that, that Jesus is your savior, that he is the way to God's family, then all that grief is justified. Every tear you've cried over someone you lost is vindicated because death really is unnatural and really can be overcome. All our instincts about what is right and wrong in families can be seen as accurate because our imperfect families, good and bad, show us shadows and shapes of God's perfect family. Our families are the imperfect shadow of that great family. And if we don't treat this idea of being in God's family as fluffy nonsense, but as a significant real thing, and start treating it like it's really promising something, then it has ramifications for how we do church. When the Bible talks about brothers and sisters in church, it really seems to mean brothers and sisters. It means that you can really expect that much loyalty. You're supposed to expect that same responsibilities and obligations you might in a blood family. Really that much loyalty, that much support, really that much forgiveness from everyone in this room to everyone in this room. The church is really meant to be the expression of God's family on earth. Still imperfect, but actively trying to follow the example that Jesus set out for us. That is why the answer to the question, do I have to, be, do I have to go to church to be a Christian, is not yes or no, but what? 
It would be like saying, I'd like to marry a girl, but I don't ever want to meet her family or friends or spend any time with them. Technically, you don't need to meet someone's family or friends to marry them. But it suggests there's something pretty messed up in your romance if that's the way you approach it. And technically, and truly, you become a Christian by faith, not by attending church. But if you're avoiding the gathering of God's family, it suggests there's something very messed up with the way you're approaching God. If you feel no loyalty to that family, then maybe something's wrong. It is the right sequence. In a good marriage, you marry your partner, their family becomes yours, your family becomes theirs. And unless the family that you married into is phenomenally messed up, which does happen sometimes, but usually not, then you have the obligation to treat them as your family. Even if it's uncomfortable at first. And here's the kicker, even if you don't like it. You owe it to your husband or wife to be part of their family. And if you confess Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then you owe it to your Lord and Savior and your Father in heaven to be part of the church. Even if it bores you, even if you don't like it. It's about family loyalty. And if church events are unsettlingly boring, then you're part of the family. Get involved and spice them up. This and all church communities in which Jesus is called Lord is the family that Christians are adopted into. And we have obligations to participate. And likewise, after accepting that we attend a church, we have to accept we're responsible for how that church functions too. We're responsible to support the ministries that go on in that church because they really are our brothers and sisters doing them and you wouldn't hang your brothers and sisters out to dry. We're responsible to get to know our family even if it's super uncomfortable. We don't often take the 30 seconds at the start of a church service to greet people you haven't seen just to stall for the music team to catch their breath. We're a family. And it really matters that we get to know each other's names. And I'm as bad at that as anyone else. But because we're so forgiving, you don't have to worry about forgetting it occasionally. We owe our brothers and sisters that respect. We're responsible to give, to attend members' meetings, to donate time and resources to the carols, for example. And there's this huge pile of obligations that comes with being part of a church family, but the payoff is amazing, like any good family. In this family, you have such a breadth of opportunities to use the gifts and skills God has given you for the betterment of one another. You have the resources and the people around you to become a better human being through accountability, through mentorship from all the Christians. You have tapped into the greatest pipeline of God-fueled human kindness that has ever existed in the world. Almost anywhere in the world, if you find the big building with the cross on the roof and you are hungry and ask, they will feed you. That's incredible in the history of mankind that has been typified by cruelty and starvation. That nation, that tribe, that family of Abraham was made open to everyone through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his rising again. Galatians 3.29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So what was said about Abraham, that his children would bless the nations, has fallen to the church. Abraham, David, Christ, us. 
Be involved in your church family. Be proud of your church family. Jesus invites us into this, his family. And our families are a picture of what that family is supposed to be like. And the church is where it gathers, where it worships, where it gets about the business of loving God and loving one another. Let's pray. Father God, you sent your son Jesus, firstborn and sinless, to die on the cross to pay the price for our failures, for our own sins, so that we could be welcomed into the blessing of Abraham. Help us to honor the family that you are the father of, Lord. Help us to fulfill our obligations to each other in love, but also to be grateful for what you offer us through the obligations of others. Help us, Lord, to give meaning to that promise that you made to us to be sons and daughters. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.